Deborah Carr is the executive director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art in Chicago. She was previously at the John G. Shedd Aquarium for 17 years. She is a past board member of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, past chair and instructor for its professional development committee and management courses, past chair of the Zoo and Aquarium Committee for the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, and former board member of the National Veterans Art Museum. She currently serves on the board for the Merritt School of Music and the National Wildlife Federation's Great Lakes Leaders Council. She frequently presents on issues related to museum relevance, teen empowerment, and activating the public for social good. Deborah Carr, welcome to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's great to be here. Uh, so you're the executive director of the museum Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. And with so many, you know, it's really fascinating. There's so many disciplines, there's so many periods. So what drew you particularly to outsider or there's a, there's a lot of different names for it, but what, what continually inspires you about that? I've been in the museum field for about uh, almost 30 years. And I came to realize over the years that my personal passion is really for the, the role that I believe museums should be playing in social justice and social good. I think that museums have a much broader role in our society or could have a much broader role in our society than they have in the past. And my particular interest is, I mean, I'm just really passionate about museums but I've always been passionate about art museums. And when I developed this sort of awareness of my own personal passion around how museums are trusted by the public, uh, uh, research projects in the United States and in Britain have shown that museums are more trusted than other segments, um, obviously corporate and government segments, uh, but also entertainment segments, um, museums and libraries are the most trusted resources in our society today. And with that trust, I think there's an obligation to bring our um, perspectives on um, our society and our histories to the public. And not just in a, in a I mean, museums have often have wanted to stay neutral, but not just in a neutral way. I think that people can come to museums and have those be uh, spaces for conversation. So why not have museums be a place for uh, disparate voices to come together in a safe space where they can have robust conversation? Why not have museums be a place where we can talk about issues that matter to us? Black Lives Matter, the, the role that museums have been playing for some time in bringing um, experiences, transformational experiences sometimes to people like uh, folks who have dementia or early onset dementia or Alzheimer's, uh, how they can be a place where people with autism can have wonderful experiences um, as long as, as their special needs are being met. So I've been, I've become passionate. I had become passionate about this and then I was working with teens uh, in an independent project and it was my project was called Youth News and I was working with teens around the country who are already involved in museum programs but taking them a step further beyond education. I was really interested in how um, teens could be turned on to um, issues that they care about and we could activate them to create online social change campaigns or they could share information in their social feeds around issues that related to museum mission. And then I met into it because they hired me to, as a consultant to help start a teen program. And I actually come from the, an administrative background, but I'm really passionate about teens and I've always been passionate about art. And when I first met into it, I was just completely blown away. Here is art made by members of our society who oftentimes have experienced some barrier, some disenfranchisement. 
And this is art that might be made by creators who are experiencing poverty and homelessness, abuse, um, illness, personal, personal damage in some way, uh, PTSD, prejudice, bigotry, and they create art. And that art comes out of that personal experience, that lived experience. So when I first saw this art, I, I found this magical intersection of the power of museums, the power of art, and the stories of these artists. And I just fell in love with the museum. And I, when I first started working with the museum, one of the staff members there said, you know, Deb, you should really be the executive director of this museum. And I was like, oh, I don't know. And then when my husband walked into the museum, he goes, oh my gosh, you should really be the, the executive director of this museum. And shortly after that, the executive director position came open and here I am. So I am extremely passionate about this museum and about the work that we do. And that all stems from the incredible power of this art and this genre. Well, I, I think that's such a, I don't want to say message, but I think that it's really a beautiful connection to have with the art and then back to the people who made it and then to the audience. And I think that is what makes Intuit, it has a unique uh, mission in that sense. And um, no, that's just really so beautiful. And, and, and it's interesting that you said, I mean, I have this feeling I'm an artist, so I've had this, I grew up around artists. So I have a, you know, I love museums, also libraries, as you said, and they're really places for the community. And what Intuit does, as I understand, is it, it welcomes those, and also those to show their art, or if they're, you know, historical artists, but um, to show them you know, posthumously. Um, but also, there are there's a certain percentage of the public that are also intimidated by museums and you know the your mission the artists you show to say this is a value let's broaden our notions as well i mean this is this is beautiful this is not you know doesn't come from you know self-taught artists or you know naive or there's so many terms as we we're saying but uh, that that can reach other audiences still, because I had heard this once. There are a lot of people who trust museums, I think also because of the, they feel they're learning and it's a less commercial space than others, because you said like media and all that kind of entertainment. But then there's still a, another percentage of that of people who aren't reached, but I think that Intuit is a great museum for them and an entry point maybe even to other museums. Exactly, exactly. And I think that um, we, we spoke for a moment before we, we jumped on the podcast about the name of the museum. And I think our founders initially were worried that um, thinking of Intuit as a museum might put people off. And I think in the world that we live in today, I think there is an increasing recognition that museums should be a place for everyone. And I think that exactly to your point, Mia, I think that Intuit is about the easiest museum to visit. We don't have an imposing facade. Um, it's a very um, low key space and we do want it to be a place where everyone feels welcome and, and feels that it's pretty easy. One of, my, one of my favorite things is when we, in the past, when we've welcomed school groups in, we have a robust uh, teacher fellowship program and we get um, a number of, of school classes that visit us in a typical year. And one of my favorite things is to be in the museum and hear the young people walk into the museum and sometimes, depending on what the exhibit is, you know, gasps of joy because they see something that they didn't expect to see. They see artwork made with, say, found materials. So artwork made from sticks and mud or bottle caps or paintbrushes or bowling pins. And they see art that is accessible. It, they, they may not initially understand what the motivation is, but the artwork itself tends to be really accessible. Some of the artwork can be very complex in terms of the themes, very daunting. 
Uh, we had one of our intuitines this week do an online workshop and he showed some of the works of Roy Ferdinand. That work can be very, um, he, he put a trigger alert in his uh, online workshop because that work can be, can be very um, disturbing. It's uh, work by um, uh, now deceased black artist from New Orleans who depicted scenes of violence and uh, th things that he saw in the streets of New Orleans, uh, black on black violence, people killing other people. And he puts that into his art so it can be really disturbing, but really powerful. These are really powerful images. And these are the kinds of images that I think are coming more forward now and are um, seeing increased acceptance across sectors of society, which I think is me signaling a step in the right direction. Yes, and yeah, and also to your point, there uh, he can be as complex, more complex, as skilled. You know, as you say, we're we're broadening our acceptance of. I mean, you know, let's say twenty years ago or twenty or thirty years ago, um, you know, the folk arts or, and let's say a lot of that's it usually was art made by women, right? Or the traditional crafts was not considered an art, you know? But it's very skilled work. And that you even have, I mean, it's just as a, a side point, I know I did an interview uh, recently with the um, president of the Costume Designers Guild. So you have this division as well, you know, between different classes and different, those who are outsiders, and then what is women's art, you know, from the past, and, and what is considered valuable, you know, high art uh, made by men. And still to this day, you know, in the film industry, the costume designer, the costume directors are paid, you know, it could be like 30% less, much less, because it's traditionally like women are costume designers, much less than the directors of the other departments. So I just, I, I'm happy to see the progress. And I mean, of course, more has to be done, but it's wonderful that there are museums such as yours to help redress that balance. It's an ongoing challenge. Even the exhibition that we have up now has fewer women artists than I would like. About half the artists in this exhibition are um, artists of color. Um, but I think that in this genre in general, we see a higher percentage of women and artists of color because the genre is available to everyone. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about this genre of art is that it isn't signified by a group of artists who know each other and feed off each other's work. This is signaled by people who tend to be working independently with their own unique vision. Um, you haven't asked specifically yet about the terminology, Mia. I know that the word outsider is very loaded for um, some scholars and some audiences. And it's not a perfect term. Um, if we had a perfect term, I would love to be using that. There just isn't one that's been more uh, widely accepted um, like outsider. But I want to emphasize that when we say outsider, we're not thinking of someone that we are pushing to the outside. We are thinking of someone who works independently from the mainstream contemporary art world, um, influenced by their own experiences and their own internal uh, vision. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I don't have a, an issue with the name. And, and I think also, I mean, as an out, I may say I'm an, I've been an outsider in a few different countries. And then when I return to those countries, I experience them differently. I experience them in memory. So, I mean, it's also, it can have a, a there's a, a value to that term as well. And somewhat times outsiders can see with great clarity. I like that. Yeah, and so I, I, and you know, and it's interesting. I, it's something else that you mentioned because you spoke about, you know, whether they're experiencing poverty or you know, um, having um, uh, mental distress or illness issues or autism or something that that would make them outside of other people's experiences, uh, and that they're not linked to a movement. 
but it's very interesting because it seems to me, um, I you know art education is good, but there's a there becomes a point where sometimes you can be taught. I don't want to say too much, but you can forget your initial impulse. Right. We've actually we host a lot of uh, university classes, high school and elementary classes. And I remember bringing in one um, art teacher from a university with a group, and he said that he felt so sad when one of his students uh, said, oh, I'm not allowed to trace. And he, he was really trying to reverse that teaching. We have a program in the Chicago Public Schools. We work with um, 10 to 12 schools each year, two teachers at each school. One is an art teacher, and one is a teacher of another topic. It can be math, theater, music, history, geography, special ed, and they come together to create a cross-disciplinary curriculum. But the tenets of that program are that anyone can be creative. You don't have to have these technical drawing or sculpting skills, and you don't have to have access to expensive supplies. That anyone can experience that release of tension, the empathy that comes with making art. And in fact, there have been some great studies in, in Britain that say uh, being creative, making art um, does reduce, scientifically does reduce stress, does increase empathy, and actually decreases reliance on prescription drugs. It's really wonderful. And uh, I mean, for whatever hardships that artists may sometimes face, um, I think it does. And, you know, I, I also want to combat that, too. I mean, you can say it's one of the missions of the creative process is that we have, we have students who are from the arts, different disciplines. About half of them are from STEM or law, international studies, a whole. And, you know, they study that. In their inter they're good at it. Um, but often they were, like, persuaded or pushed a little bit by their parents or that would be a profession. So they're coming back and getting involved in the creative process. And they're like, oh, I can... I can explore this and you know they're and they're good too <laughs> so and and so I just want to say I think that's a wonderful thing to be part of and it can happen at any age um, you know so some people were told and they were put off being an artist and they you know started at 60 you know many many of the artists in our genre had careers or jobs and they don't have the time to start creating until they reach retirement age and that's when they start making and creating. Um, I think of I think of Bill Trailer, who had a number of different jobs, and at the end of his life, he would sit on a bench in in Montgomery, Alabama, and that's when he started drawing what his his scenes of everyday life and of his past. I think that those um, those impulses are there for people, and for many people, they can't act upon them until they're no longer actively working. And, and another thing, which is speaking about the, I mean, having a personal connection to the art, and I'm all for every, um, everything that helps support artists, you know, economically. I mean, I, I don't believe in the romanticism. I think it can make, it can make art, you know, very powerful. But the, you know, I want them to be able to live and these things. Um, but there is a difference when art is made for a gallery or it's for a museum show. And this, there, after you do something for a while, it, it, what was started off is for you. You say, for me, I'm doing this for me. I'm experiencing this emotional or personal. And then you're making it for them. You know, you can just feel it, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated topic. Um, many of our artists, um, never, never make, you know, Henry Darger never made the work to be shown. He always made it for himself. In other cases, I mean, we live in an era where it's very hard to be completely isolated. Uh, we're, um, we're exhibiting right now an artist, George Widener, and George is someone who um, has had a diagnosis of, um, I believe, autism. And, but he's very, um, he's very self-aware. He's represented by a gallery. He, um, he, he's a veteran. He served in, um, I believe in Afghanistan and experienced PTSD. And he, um, 
started out making art as a way of dealing with his personal uh, situation. Um, he has a special relationship with numbers and all of his paintings in, in include numbers and embody numbers. And that was a way of him dealing with um, the challenges that he faced. But he now has, he, he said, he feels like he's someone who started out as an outsider artist and has moved into a place where he no longer meets the definition because he has a gallery, he's making art to be sold, and he's very self-aware. Um, he's, he's, uh, he's a delightful person to talk with. And I, I feel really privileged that we are uh, working with him right now for him to give some talks and to, to talk to um, our teachers and students. That's right. As we're recording it today, you're giving a talk. I do want to say, I will go on to the moment you're reopening after a long lockdown. <laughs> so congratulations. And, and I know you have all the measures in place. And so I'm excited about that for you. Um, you just, I want to go back to one thing and you raised uh, something that's very fascinating because you've spoken about the healing benefits of, just the sense of well-being that creativity can give to anyone who takes part in it. Um, but it's interesting, you know, people who say have autism or have uh, like perceptual differences or something, um, and it's the, the act of making art can help unlock that or give them access to expression that, that doesn't always come out in other ways. I mean, I've, I mean, you must have, have heard the stories. I mean, there's some people who have like... Um, there was a man who had extreme memory loss. He could only remember the last 20 seconds and then it wiped all the time. And he had formerly been a um, concert pianist and all, you know, right when he sat in front of the piano, it all, I mean, you, the muscle memory somehow was there. Everything else was gone. He didn't know who his wife was. He, he didn't know what city he was in. And that's the mystery and the amazing thing of art that it re it's like water you know it reaches all the cracks and even if the, everything is gone it can move you or heal you or somehow i think that uh that's really one of the fascinating things about this genre i i've often said that um some of the people that are making this art have used art as a way of finding their own power. I think about so many artists who've begun making art while they're in prison or in um, really difficult circumstances like Roy Ferdinand, who I mentioned earlier, and the art provides that, you know, self-empowerment, that um, control over their environment. Um, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty incredible tool. It's a pretty incredible experience. I think that's one of the reasons why people like to come to into it. It's of course the art stands on its own and has its own power, but um, the the stories of these artists and the circumstances that they come from, I think imbue their art with additional additional power. And it's not like even the the artists from the past. We know their stories. We know a bit about Vincent Van Gogh. We know about uh, Claude Monet losing his eyesight. That those are embedded in in their stories and their art as well so i think it's when people say to me well we have to tease those apart i think that the art and the creative process are pretty intrinsically together yeah i think that's it because i think there's a point at which when you really start to appreciate art it becomes so enhanced when your imagination is ignited so you're becoming a part of the storytelling process you're no longer in the audience and that's that's a beautiful, and then so, and you, and so you visit a, a museum, you come to into it, and you, you leave feeling like, I could go and do a painting. I have some found things, and that's the that's the great thing is it's I I feel um, I love to appreciate art, but and I guess as an artist, I'm always, I am always looking for what inspires me, so I try to invite that. My name is Julia Newcorn. I'm from Chicago, Illinois, and I'm studying communication and media studies at Fordham University at Lincoln Center. I am an associate podcast producer and interviewer with the creative process. Deborah Carr explains how the Intuit Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art really centers everything they do around the idea of the outsider, 
both through their appearance as a museum and from within, through their artwork displayed and the programs that they run. Something that really stuck with me is how the museum does not look the same way that one would think a typical museum might look. It does not have an imposing facade, in the words of Deborah Carr. It is a very approachable space. You can go in and not be overwhelmed by what is around you. Part of that is because the art is created by outsiders, and visitors may feel comforted by this. The museum can serve as the entry point for museum goers, a place to dip your toe into before you actually become a museum goer. This is something I can relate to. I never went to museums growing up. The first time I went to the Art Institute of Chicago was about two years ago. I was already in college. My parents were definitely overwhelmed with the idea of the museum as well, which was absolutely passed on to me. I can appreciate Intuit's dedication to being a very accessible space because art is such an important thing to be able to appreciate and maybe to even understand. It is one of those worlds that is very hard to penetrate into, so when you are not in that world, it can seem very exclusive. Intuit's mission to undo that and to make a gateway for others is very admirable. Being from Chicago myself, I know that the city is filled with amazingly talented creatives. Intuit's teen programs are significant and important because Chicago teens need this kind of place to provide access to art. Chicago public schools are both unevenly funded and underfunded, resulting in scarce arts departments across the city. Intuit adds another outlet that teens can go to when they cannot depend on their school. Mia gracefully says, outsiders can see with great clarity. Whether the outsiders are artists, observers, teenagers, differently abled people, joyful people, depressed people, they all come together and appreciate the beauty in art, or not, which is part of the beauty of art. No matter what, creativity creates community, and that's part of what makes Intuit so important and so special. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Deborah Carr, Executive Director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. You know, the other thing, Mia, that has happened, one, one of our goals is to give each person a transformational experience, and we've really relied on these intimate on-site experiences, but with COVID happening this year, we've really pivoted, and we've created a number of intimate transformational experiences that we're having online with people. So once a month, we've taken our, what was formerly an on-site program, Art After Work, that's the third Thursday, and anyone, anywhere can join us online and make art with us. And we have a little bit of it facilitated, but we also don't mind if someone does their own artwork. So we have, sometimes we have a little music, have a little conversation, people share what they're working on, and they we just have an hour-long everybody create together session online. So that's really fun. I find it to be really relaxing and soothing. And then we also have a regular program now called One Night Stand where we spend 30 minutes just on one work of art and one artist, just diving really deeply, like what we used to call slow art, where we look deeply at one work of art and talk about the artist and talk about what we see in the artwork, maybe listen to a little music that relates to the artist's background. So we've really pivoted to create a lot more online experiences and we're recording those. So if someone misses um, the live one night stand, they can tune in later. Um, and, and as you said, tonight, we're going to be talking with George Widener. So that will be recorded and it will be available on our, on our website. So we're really hoping to bring a much wider audience into our virtual home because the fans of this artwork are not all concentrated in Chicago. They're all over the world. People who, who have found this art to really touch them. And we want to make sure that we can reach people even if they can't visit. And even if, even if there's an audience member here in Chicago, right now they may not feel comfortable visiting. So how do we reach them with, the transformational power of this art if they can't be on site with us. We've really been focusing on that. 
Well, um, yes, and you can find under, you have a great domain. It's very easy to remember, art.org. <laughs> so uh, there's no excuses. And yeah, I think that's really wonderful. And the slow art is great because the artist at least spent a half an hour absorbed <laughs> in it. So you're, again, you're almost, you know, being able to see each stroke and think like the artist. It's, and our, and our guests who sit in, provide really wonderful insight about what they're seeing. And that could be, those vary widely, of course, what each individual might want to share about what they're seeing in the artwork and how it relates to their own story. Yeah, that's, that is a wonderful thing when it, it surpasses or goes far beyond what the artist might have imagined. Um, yeah, that's a creativity. Well, you know, I think we really have this very strong impulse towards it. And, you know, you see it in children from the beginning. Absolutely. It breaks my heart when I hear stories about people saying, oh, I haven't felt the freedom to draw since I was a kid. Or sometimes when, we're, when we do art after work, we hear someone say, well, my, my stick figures are getting better and better. And, and there's no judgment. It's all about just taking the time to be away from um, the situations that we find ourselves, our work, our quarantine in place, um, any stressors that we have in our life, and just take time for ourselves just to be creative. It's, it's an amazing gift. And I want to speak, you mentioned about what one of the George Widener um, and the current exhibit that you'll be opening, it'll be open now by the time this podcast airs. Then um, that's a special in the collection of um, Victor F. Keen. Just tell us a little bit about that and some of the artists in it and his, and his approach to collecting. It's, it's interesting. And Victor's, Victor's a wonderful uh, friend and an interesting character. He, uh, he lives in Philadelphia. He first started collecting um, Catalan radios, what we might think of as Bakelite radios, but they were actually a, a different um, company had purchased the Bakelite process and improved it. And they're these beautiful, you know, plastic, um, everyone is different because of the, the melting process, beautiful radios. And he was working at um, uh, Dwayne Morris Law Offices and the head of that firm, Sheldon Bonovitz, was an outsider art collector and the firm acquired art that was hanging on the wall. So Victor became very exposed to that and then he met the gallerist Frank Maresca in New York and they became good friends. So Victor began to collect outsider art. Because George Widener is a living artist, um, Victor met George and they actually became good friends. They've actually gone hiking together and so forth. They, they've actually really connected with each other. So uh, Victor has quite a lot of George's work, but he has some incredible works by some of the um, more recognizable names in outsider art. Um, he has a couple of uh, Martin Ramirez's that are in the show. There's, there's one long work um, with trains that is just incredibly beautiful. Maybe one of the most spectacular Ramirez works I've ever seen. Uh, Lee Goaty, who was uh, a homeless woman who lived here in Chicago and did both paintings and would go into the photo booth in the old Greyhound bus station and take self-portraits of herself with different persona. We recognize the shape or the color, something like we, we love to classify things. Once we recognize it, we classify that we can see it without having to look at it. And so, it, so it's it's strange that you know, I don't know. So there's a lot of blind, there's a lot of walking blind people. I feel in a in a metaphorical sense. So that's it. That's I guess that's the importance of the arts to help people see. So you've spoken about your fellowships, your teaching initiatives. Okay, you have a wonderful collection as well, and I would love to hear you know in this history, you know how the, how the pieces, how the I mean, an ongoing what. Well, it's, it's a very unusual collection because we're so small, um, every work in the collection was donated. So everything that we have in the collection is donated and we're very proud of um, a lot of the beautiful artwork that's in that collection. Um, in fact, um, in uh, 2018, we were involved with a citywide initiative called Art Design Chicago and we um, 
put together an exhibition that really told the story of Chicago's being one of the first places in the United States to really embrace this genre. And in fact, uh, the, you know, one of the fathers of the genre is the French artist Jean Dubuffet, who came to the United States in the early 50s, didn't get much traction in New York, but when he came to the Arts Club of Chicago, he gave a speech in 1951, and people there were already thinking about um, the art that was different from the mainstream, and I think that Chicago being in the Midwest, there was less um, there was less competition, New York and Europe, or what was going on in the West Coast. Chicago was sort of its own thing. And there was a lot of um, embracing, and I think a lot of that was led by um, professors at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago that who were very open-minded and encouraged their students to look in unusual places for things that would inspire them. So because we've always had this tradition of embracing um, outsider art, uh, we put this exhibit together based on um, 10 artists, some of whom, many of whom are in our collection. And that exhibit is actually still touring in Europe. We, after it was here in Chicago, um, it was in Paris, then um, outside Munich. And right now it's at the Collection de l'Art Brut in Lausanne. And in it'll be there from now through November of 2020. And in January 2021, it will open at the Outsider Art Museum in Amsterdam and close in May 2021. So we're very proud of that. Right now, we're preparing for Art Design Chicago 2024. And we're once again looking at our collection. And we're thinking that this time we might focus on immigrants who came to Chicago. And once they arrived in Chicago, they had an artistic experience. We have in our collection works by um, Aldo Piacenza, who came from Italy to Chicago, and then began painting and making these sculptures that were homages to European cathedrals, especially Italian cathedrals, as birdhouses sculptures. Um, we are looking at um, uh, Betty Zakoyan. We have a large collection of her beautiful works. Her story is so poignant. She was a survivor of the Armenian genocide of uh, 1915. She uh, saw her parents killed by Ottoman Turks. She and her brothers were rounded up and put on a train to be deported. And in the middle of the night, the train stopped. She was seven years old. She got off the train to go to the bathroom and the train left without her. She walked along the train tracks at seven to Greece. She was eventually taken in by um, American missionaries there. Ultimately got married, moved to uh, the Chicago area, raised her family, helped her husband run his grocery store, was active in her church. And when one of her sons grew up, uh, he started making art. And he said, Mom, I think you should make art. And she made art for the rest of her life. And we have these beautiful, brightly colored paintings. But as you look closely at them, you see these sad faces, lots of Madonna and childish uh, images, images of working families, farm families, um, farm work from um, Armenia, and some really powerful images of a figure walking along railroad tracks at night. So it's a really powerful story. Um, and it's interesting to me that it seems like many people immigrated to Chicago. It's a huge, as you know, Mia, it's a city of immigrants. And so many people came to Chicago and then started making art. And I would love to explore this. It's so interesting because it's really, you know, it, we were talking about outside, that's really the outsider as the, the person coming from outside, all, a double outsider, outsider art. And, and also art as memory and um, keeping memories alive. And that's, and I can see you're very moved. I mean, who, who wouldn't be moved by that? Uh, uh, what resilience she had at seven years old. Um, that's beautiful and that she could find solace in the art and share it. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, so then you spoke a bit about, okay, the immigrant um, contributions to Chicago, the special character, what, what for you also is just the special character of Chicago, which has produced many great artists in many disciplines, and what is it about it? Well, and it's interesting to me, I get asked a lot of time, 
why were there were so many outsider artists in Chicago? And I think that every city, every town is probably uh, home to people who are creating in without others knowing about it. I think what was different in Chicago is that people were accepting and continue to be accepting of artistic notions that are outside the mainstream. I think about the Chicago images, also called the Harry Who, and they're very different um, approach, more of a, um, I don't wanna call it pop, but more of a, of a popular culture approach to art. So I think that there is something here about this city that it's, it's stuck in the middle of, the, of a very big country it gets really cold here in the winter time and we have to find other ways to keep ourselves um, engaged and entertained and exposed to culture and i think that there's something about that that the city of immigrants the city of um, sharp changes in weather the city that wasn't on a coast didn't have to compete with the pacific rim didn't have to compete with europe that there was something here that allowed for a very open-mindedness around uh, different different creative experiences, you know, it's a it's a great art city. It's a great architecture city. It has had a great reputation for architecture, great theater city, great cooking city. So I think that there's a real um, creative presence here, even in the midst of COVID. I was reading today about a new bakery that was opening, a new uh, craft brewery that was opening that things are still happening here um it's 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 scary because things are going away restaurants are failing and businesses are failing and and there's been a lot of projections about museums around the country in precarious situations but the creative spirit is still coming forth i love reading about all of the creativity that's happening with artists who have been um you know, stuck in their studios during COVID, and that's allowed new creativity to blossom. Uh, I am, like you, worried about livelihoods, but um, but I am interested and engaged by the creativity that's being sparked both by COVID and by the awareness of the racial injustices that have been built into our societies. So I think this is a very, we're living very interesting times. Well, I can tell you one thing, and, I, and I'd like to relate it back to, you know, um, education. And I, and I feel very hopeful because, um, for one thing, I mean, it's brought out in certain people as any kind of event like this will, um, will bring out negative and good. But I found so many, you know, um, students who are diligent, I mean, artists as well, and so many people who, people are saying, what? okay, what do I value? I can't go out. You know, if every count, encounter has to, to count. And I found, exactly, and with students, you know, they're really asking themselves, and we've been asking them too, you know, what are your wishes for the future? We actually have a branch of our podcast, a new one. <laughs> and, and it's amazing what you've, they've been talking about, the things you're talking about, social justice, you know, equitable education, um, you know, the importance of the art, all these things, empathy. Um, and they're involved in projects, not just our own. So that makes me hopeful because however we may have, we have messed things up, <laughs> um, it's the next generation is like willing to be committed. And um, so that I, I do want to ask about that. You know, as you think about the future, I mean, there's so many systems I, I feel we can improve. I do ask that of our students. So I'm not just putting you on the spot. <laughs> but, you know, as you think about the future and that whether it's, you know, have more inclusive societies or global warming or, you know, education, healthcare, it's on all of our minds. You know, what are some things that you would like to change? What are some ways forward, you know, uh, that we might... Um, leave the world a better place for future generations and you know and also you know what do you want young people to know preserve and remember well given my background and working with young people I'm very passionate about them and this year well we started I met into it when we started the Intuit Teens program in 2014 and this year we were hearing from other museums in Chicago that they weren't even going to be doing their teen programs so 
we went the other direction. Um, we're a very small museum, but we took more teens than we normally do into our program. So we have 15 teens this summer in our Intuit Teens program. We pay all of the teens. Um, we started out just paying the teens that had need because they couldn't participate if they didn't get a little bit of a salary to offset their, their family's need. But now we pay every teen that participates. And they have been so interested in um, the social issues of today. They've been very interested in the Black Lives Matter movement. Even when Paula, our education lead, was interviewing teens, she said every single teen talked about the importance of this opportunity for change right now. And uh, one, of our, one of our guest artists that spoke to them was a political artist who makes um, political art. And I know the teens, I talked with the teens earlier this week, they were really engaged with the idea that you could use your art to make political statements. And of course, not all of them are planning to be artists. One of them is more of a, a writer, spoken word person. Um, but every single teen I've talked to has been really passionate about the opportunity that this program is giving them to engage with other young people and with adults and artists who are interested in social justice. So, I don't, I don't have any magic answers except that we are, we are promoting that interest among our teens. We are looking to do a better job as a museum. We exhibit art made by people of color, but we don't have as many guests of color that we'd like, as many program participants of color as we'd like. You know, white affluent people have been in the past the majority of museum goers. I am, we, we set a goal in 2015 to increase our audience of color. At the time we were at 15% of our audience. Um, the national average for art museums is more like 11% of their audience are people of color for art museums. And by 2016, we'd moved that up to 25%. Last year in 2019, we moved it up to 30%. I'd love for it to be more, I'd love for it to be 50 or 60% because as we were talking earlier, this art is so accessible to everyone. And this art is made um, oftentimes by people of color. We have much art on our walls right now by black and brown artists. And we would love to be hosting more um, guests of color coming through our door. And how do we let them know that, that Intuit is a safe space for everyone? We, we, do, we do a lot of, of groups with um, autism. We do groups with uh, dementia. I want this museum to be the most accessible museum in Chicago in every way, psychologically, emotionally, no matter what your background, what, um, what your orientation, I want everyone to know that this is a place where they are welcome and that I'd like them to be involved in helping us make decisions about future programming so we can have dialogue about how we deal with the incarcerated in our society. How do we deal with people who appear to be different? How do, how do we make them welcome and more welcome in our society? How do we bring more equity into our society? How do we break down those societal structures, the systemic um, racism that's been built into our structures. Um, we're a tiny place, but we're really interested in being part of that conversation and helping to make whatever difference we can make. And we're starting with our teenagers, and I can't think of a better place to start than with young people. Oh, well, you're, you're already doing so much, and I'm not sure because I don't know the whole history of your exhibitions and programming and we didn't even speak about Henry Darger who so we would speak about him too but I, I just something occurred to me and, and I don't know in terms of music or performance um, I'm a big I'm a big advocate for multi-sensory experiences so we I love it when we can bring sound into our exhibitions in a natural way I love it when we can create multi-sensory experiences where where you get involved. I love it when we have an opportunity for the guests to participate. We did a, an exhibit, a Henry Darger exhibit a few years ago called Author Artist. 
and we brought out his typewriter into the middle of the the gallery where we had the artwork hanging and we had we blew up uh, some of the pages that he had had typed and put them next to the artwork but we also I also bought an old typewriter on eBay and we put this old typewriter in the middle of the gallery and invited guests to type and we brought in a soundtrack of the old-fashioned typing sounds with the tap 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 and the ding and the carriage return sound and it was for me it was lovely because we had a lot of young people who come came in and who had never sat down to a typewriter and were just delighted with this mechanical device that they could they could um, interact with so I love it when we can have performance we do a lot of performance um, in our space we recently partnered with Chicago Dance Theater they did a series of performances in their space about mental illness and we loaned them our uh, lending collection of artworks that were made by um, uh, artists that were in um, an atelier in Belgium so all the artworks made by artists who had um, had, had mental um, illness as part of their history and we put those artworks up in their lobby space where they were doing a performance about mental illness. So I love it when we can bring together different um, modes of expression and blend them to create those, once again, I'm back to transformative experiences for our guests and our audiences. Well, that, those are wonderful. You really offer a lot of ways in, be it education, be it, you know, audio, performative, uh, you know, because there's so many, as you said, as there are many different ways of seeing, there's so many different ways of experiencing the world, and some people speak more to sound than vision, but then something else gets going when they get in the space. I wanted to say anyone who is, um, has the opportunity to visit um, Intuit, um, you, sh you should do so. It's a welcoming space. It's uh, a museum space that also feels like a space that where artist art could be made. And as I say, you is invite people to take part in that too. So it is a place where art is being made. Um, I think it's just a beautiful initiative and I wish there were more places uh, like Intuit around the country and in different parts of the world. Um, and I'm looking forward to catching some of the traveling and also seeing in Chicago when I'm next there, when I can get on the plane again. Um, I do just want to thank you, uh, Deborah Carr and Intuit uh, Center for intuitive and outsider art for expanding our appreciation, acceptance, and awareness of outsider art, broadening our notions of what art is and whose stories deserve to be told, and for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. I'm thrilled to be part of the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Julia Newcorn. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nikolas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info.